Our weekly reminder that although we interview very real scientists about very real work in the fields we talk about, the projects we discuss today are predominantly fictional and inspired by the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, to whose estate all rights belong. Welcome back to Biologists of Middle-Earth. I'm your host Sam Perrin and we hope you're having a wonderful start to the summer even in light of the once again escalating Polnia-Rosia conflicts. I'm here this week with Annie Carew who's a science communicator at the University of Maryland Center for Environmental Science. Annie's developing a coastal adaptation report in the Grey Havens, a coastal region of Middle-Earth which is prone to storms and tidal flooding. Annie's been working with the local population of elves, which are about to depart the region and are trying to maintain the area's ecological integrity for future generations. The completed report will provide the local elves with an assessment of how well prepared their communities are for coastal change, along with suggestions for any future restoration the region may require. Welcome, Annie. Flooding of elven areas isn't something we often think of when we talk about elven societies in Middle-earth, but it's a very real danger to these areas, isn't it? Uh, Yes, yes it is. And I think that there's a very clear uh, connection, a well-known connection between the elves and the sea. They have a long-standing cultural and spiritual connection to the sea. They arrived in Middle-earth by ship and all elves, it said, feel the call to return to to the undying lands uh, via the sea. There's that strong spiritual connection between uh, Olmo and the creation of the world. And that sort of spiritual uh, residence, I think, is very relevant to a lot of elves. And the kingdom of Lindon is a coastal kingdom, and it's been an important elven civilization for centuries, if not millennia. What sort of ecosystems do you have in the uh, coastal area around the Grey Havens? The mouth of the River Loon has historically formed a wide uh, river delta, which is a rich bed of sediment at the mouth of the river that supports coastal forests, salt marshes, and then aquatic plants and seagrasses in the bay itself. And uh, the activity that occurs in Mithlon, which is um, general coastal development and and building of houses and and similar infrastructure, as well as the outputs from Celebrimbor's forge that have occurred there over the centuries, have definitely contributed to the increasing sedimentation of that river. This is beneficial in some ways in that it builds up the delta and provides more habitat for the marshes and forests, but that increased turbidity can block sunlight for the seagrasses in the bay. And there are also occasionally algal blooms, depending on what's been put into the river, and algal blooms create deoxygenized uh, zones that can kill off various fishes. Are the levels of pollution and impact that you see there comparable to what we've done on our earth in some freshwater and coastal communities? Yes and no. I think yes, because the elves, like the humans in our world, are building in coastal areas because they like they love the ocean, they feel connected to the ocean. I think that we as human beings love and feel connected to the ocean, and there's a lot of benefits there for us, you know, sources of food and travel routes and things like that. So there, there is a comparison that can be drawn to just general coastal development and the impacts that that has on those coastal ecosystems. But at the same time, I... I would be inclined to think that in our world, there's more toxic pollution, but maybe not because there's mining that occurs in Middle Earth also. So that's a really good question. I think the answer is both yes and no. (laughs) The report you're working on is intended to prevent flooding of elven settlements in the future. 
How do these ecosystems currently prevent uh, the urban settlements from being flooded? Salt marshes and seagrasses are both very effective at wave and current attenuation, essentially slowing the flow of water as it passes through the ecosystems. I think salt marshes in particular are very effective at uh, filtration. As water comes down the river and into the bay, it sort of slows in the grasses and then has the chance to uh, settle out and sort of disperse some of that energy that comes with flowing water. So when a storm or tide moves a large amount of water into the mouth of the river, seagrasses and salt marshes are key to slowing the water down so that it's less likely to overwhelm the coastal settlements that are there. And with the coastal forests, additionally, all plants root systems hold soil in place. So if there's a large storm further inland that's adding a lot of water to the river from upstream, forests and marshes alike prevent the soil from washing away. When uh, rain falls on streets and roofs in, in elven or human or dwarvish uh, cities and settlements, there's nothing stopping it, and it rushes straight into the river or the bay, which ex- exacerbates the inflow and makes the flooding issue worse. The report by the elves has only just been commissioned now, despite the fact that you know they've been living in this area for uh, centuries, if not millennia. Why are the elves only now realizing the importance of restoring these ecosystems? It's not so much that the importance of coastal ecosystems is news to the elves, but time moves differently for an immortal race. It's also about adjusting to changing conditions and the results of thousands of years of settlement in this area and increasing influence from other uh, intelligent races in Middle-earth. The conversation is changing in Middle-earth as a whole. The elves have always been very aware of their natural environment and feel a strong connection to it, but they're not always eager to actively affect the world around them. With the rise of the race of men, however, they're realizing that all intelligent sentient races, men, elves, and dwarves, are able and responsible for the changes in the world around them. As the elves prepare to leave Middle-earth, I think that they feel a responsibility to leave the world a better place than they found it, and that it can continue on without them. What has the engagement process been like? Who reached out to who? So the the research group that I am a part of uh, does these kinds of of environmental reports across Middle-earth and on a variety of ecosystems, although it's usually focused on rivers and estuaries and coastal aquatic systems. The elves of Linden heard about similar work that we did in Osgiliath, and they reached out to us asking for a similar process in the Grey Havens. Uh, We like to work very collaboratively with local communities to determine what's most important, because nobody knows Mithlond better than the Mithlond elves. What sort of cultural differences have you noticed going from working with a city of humans like Osgiliath to working with the elves? I think it's the same question of timescale and how different races perceive timescales. The elves are immortal. They, they view the world very differently. They're thinking much more long term. And uh, the race of men is has shorter lifespans, as we know. And so they're thinking a little bit more about the immediate effects, the short-term consequences of actions, and the ways that they can actively shape the world around them and improve their lives and their societies, which I think is very different from how the elves approach uh, development and, and science generally. Shifting baseline syndrome is what a lot of ecologists use to refer to the phenomena of us perceiving a normal ecosystem as potentially what happened uh, when we were younger or only a hundred years ago, as opposed to how the ecosystem used to look before human impact really took place. How does shifting baseline syndrome work with a species that, uh, or a group of humanoids that is essentially, as you said, immortal? 
I think that that is one of the big questions about a project like this. And it's one of the reasons that we really value community input from the Elvish side and then ideally from, from other races as well, because we are thinking about different timescales. The elves may want to harken back to a time, you know, an age or two into the past where the landscape looked incredibly different than it does today. And then the race of men is thinking, again, a little bit more in the short term. So it's a question of where do we want to set that baseline? And that's a conversation that is ongoing among these different communities, among these different races. And it's a conversation that I'm sure will continue, especially as the elves take themselves out of the picture and leave mankind on its own, more or less. Moving on to the uh, restoration process that will be the result of this report you're turning into the elves, will your team be included? Uh, not directly. We we tend to come in and and create these reports, and then we intend them as uh, baselines or tools for decision making. Uh, our goal is that the results of this of this work and this report will inform future restoration projects and management decisions. The report is meant to be a decision making tool and a benchmark or a baseline, as you were saying. Ideally we or someone else will return to the area and repeat the same kind of work in a couple of years to see what progress has been made. Now, I understand that a large number of elves have already left via the Grey Havens. Are you worried that this intended ecosystem restoration might lapse or just get pushed uh, to the back of the queue once a larger number have departed? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. As I alluded to earlier, the elves have a pretty strong view of themselves as stewards of Middle-earth. They, they care deeply about the natural world and want to ensure its survival. And I think that as they depart Middle-earth, their hope is that they're leaving behind a model for sustainable coastal management that men and dwarves can follow, and that the work that they do in the Grey Havens now will persist well into the future, both in terms of like habitat maintenance and then also the model for that process and decision-making into the future. Before we go today, Annie, uh, we have a couple of questions from listeners. The first is from Barnaby Llewellyn Smythe of Barnaldswick. Barnaby would like to know that given there is eutrophication uh, and oversedimentation dumped by elvish activity, but that they take almost no fish from the sea, they're an almost vegetarian society, what sort of coastal ecosystem does that result in? That's a fantastic question. Uh, I love that question, actually, because I... Salt marshes and seagrasses are two of my favorite ecosystems, and they're both pretty pop. Not, popular is not quite the right word, but they are they are very heavily used as as nursery habitats by a variety of fish species, um, species that would be valuable to a more carnivorous society as a source of food. So if you if we think about the species that use seagrasses and salt marshes as habitat, it's it's young fishes, it's spawning fishes, and it's the larvae larval or younger life stages of species like crabs and clams and mussels. So I think that it, without that fishing pressure, those ecosystems become even more vital as uh, nursery systems and as havens for breeding individuals of, of those, all those species. All right. Well, thanks for that question, Barnaby. And thanks for your time today, Annie. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was fun.
The Grey Havens, obviously a fictional location, but there are many coastal ecosystems around the world that are heavily threatened by anthropogenic activity. And Annie, you have worked uh, with several of them. Why don't you tell us a bit about your actual real life work? So this project that I designed for the Grey Havens is based on a project that we did here in Maryland called the Coastal Adaptation Report Card, which is looking uh, specifically at the Maryland counties that surround the Chesapeake Bay. For those who may not be familiar with the region, the Chesapeake Bay is a huge estuary. I believe they are the largest in the United States or North America, possibly both. And its watershed encompasses all or part of six states. So that's a huge chunk of the U.S. population that lives within this watershed. And then the state of Maryland in particular has a lot of a lot of cultural pride in the Chesapeake Bay. And then also there's a lot of economic activity, people living very close to the bay. So it's it's important for us to understand what's happening in the bay, what will happen in the bay, and how that will impact human communities and what we're doing now and into the future to prepare for that. So this Coastal Adaptation Report Card Project spoke with a, a variety of officials from officials and community members from around around the bay um, talking about things like ecosystem restoration, the coastal forests and marshes that I was talking about earlier. And um, a lot of a lot of talk about flood preparedness and and disaster response, because if we think about the storms and flooding that are going to get progressively worse as climate change continues, emergency preparedness is going to play a huge role in how well human communities are prepared to to meet that threat and not just be completely decimated by it. If people want to find out more about your work or follow you on any form <laughs> of our social media, where can they find you? Yeah, they can visit uh, my organization's website, uh, edu. that has all of our, our projects linked. And there's a variety of things that we've worked on, both very specifically focused in the Maryland area or in other places in the U.S. or um, around the world. We have, we have projects across the globe that do similar work in a, in a variety of places. And um, if you want to follow me personally, where I talk about a variety of topics, including science and fantasy and the intersection between those two things, my Twitter is uh, JustOneCarew, J-U-S-T-O-N-E-C-A-R-E-W. Uh, thank you once again, Annie, for coming on. Yeah, this was great. This is so cool. I love this project. I'm excited to hear the other episodes and see where it goes well speaking of which hang around for a second and you can hear a sneak peek from next week's episode uh hopefully because their home ranges are so large we will only be dealing with one dragon at a time which will make our job a lot easier but as for extinction risk like i think we can see or we can draw a parallel to sharks on earth like they are animals that are also long-lived and slow to reproduce they are top predators there aren't that many of them so when people take a disliking to them there is a potential for populations to crash dramatically. So we're hoping to prevent or at least mitigate for that here.